So remember Ezekiel is seeing things by the Kabar Canal. Over the heads of the living creatures there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystals spread out above their heads. And under the expanse their wings were stretched out straight one toward another, and each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and above the expanse over their heads there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain so is the appearance of the brightness all around such is the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the lord and when i saw it i fell on my face and i heard the voice of one speaking teacher in 10th uh, grade would always introduce her lesson by saying, let me confuse you a little more. <laughs> um, yeah. I do not want to uh, confuse anyone. Uh, I, there are reasons that I probably avoid, avoided the first chapter of Ezekiel for most of my ministry. I, somebody <laughs> said, I've never heard a sermon on Ezekiel 1, and they've been here for almost 20 years, so uh, there's a reason, uh, probably. And that's uh, it's not a good one, because it is such a wonderful book. And I, I think the, the way to uh, think about this whole chapter and the whole book is in its historical context. I, I know you, if you think in terms of the historical context and you remember the context in which the Holy Spirit spoke to the prophet and gave his word, then the interpretation and the application uh, become much more plain. The, um, the historical circumstances are exactly what they are in the book of Daniel. Maybe, maybe a few years, well actually, no, maybe just at, in the middle of Daniel, uh, the same context. Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego or if you prefer their uh, Hebrew names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were in the vanguard of the first group exiled. There, was three, there were three basic deportations to Israel over a period of 30 years. And um, you had the first group, which is uh, Daniel's group. Then you had the second group, which is uh, Ezekiel's group. And then you had the last group, which ultimately uh, 
is the group that uh, Jeremiah preaches to and prophesies to, although he gets carted off to Egypt uh, uh, for judgment with those who stubbornly refuse to hear the message of the prophets. And the message of these prophets are, you're not going to escape this temporal judgment. The, 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 the hammer is falling uh, by the Babylonian Empire, and you're going into captivity. And what is God doing to Israel in that captivity? Uh, what, is, what are his purposes? And his purposes are uh, judgment as well as restoration. And so you have these incredible pronouncements of judgment. I, I read through Ezekiel and it just, I almost have to turn away because it's so graphic in the description of the judgment that he prophesies will fall and ultimately does fall. And if we read the other historic background, we know did fall on Israel for their uh, disobedience and unfaithfulness. And when you read Ezekiel, I think, I think the, uh, the, it's helpful to think of Isaiah as well. Isaiah prophesied over a span of 40 years, and so you have this incredible long ministry uh, that doesn't yet touch the time of uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, but is a precursor. As he looks forward, he prophesies about that time as well. And the parallel of Isaiah being in the temple, seeing the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus, high and exalted and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple, and the angelic creatures, which I believe were the same creatures, just described from a different perspective, the cherubim uh, flying with their wings, uh, covering their, their face, covering their feet, and then flying, crying out, uh, holy, 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 uh, is it, so try not to, I know that it's somewhat confusing reading about these creatures with four different kinds of faces and uh, uh, on a human form. What, well, the, the bottom line is they're angels, and I, I should have made that point a little more clear, clearly this morning in my first point. These are angels. These are angelic beings, creatures that we, we read about, but have been, again, stylized in our popular culture. When, we, when you hear the word cherub, uh, you think of this cute little baby with wings, right? And we see them at Christmas time, they're on our Christmas cards. And uh, oh, how sweet. Well, those aren't cherubs. Cherubim is a Hebrew plural, actually. Those, those are, are fanciful figures that have no basis in what the scriptures say they are. These are awesome, wonderful, exalted beings that we can uh, scarcely take in when Ezekiel describes them. And the, and the point is, these are created by God to glorify him. The other point to make is their counterparts. There was a war in heaven, uh, I believe, at the time uh, that God was creating the earth. 
And part of his plan was to allow the rebellion in heaven. And we learn that Satan and his minions, his, his, uh, his uh, Satan, the most exalted of all the angelic beings, falls to the earth with his minions. And we have, ever since then, been engaged in a cosmic struggle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. The real battle is an epic spiritual one in which we enter into when we're called by the gospel of grace. So think in terms of the New Testament and understanding, to use Jeff's uh, vernacular, um, think, think backwards. Think, think of the, the, the fulfillment passages like Romans 8, like Ephesians 3, Ephesians 4, or even Ephesians 1, uh, the whole book. Think, think of the book of Revelation. Read that background and understand uh, that, that uh, Ezekiel is describing what the, what the uh, New Testament writers uh, write about as well. This morning, uh, I'm try, trying to make two basic points. Uh, that This is about the glory of God revealed by his angels. And then it is about the glory of God revealed in his providence. And that, that second point I may, may have made better, but uh, I do believe uh, the the, this uh, chariot, this chariot throne that is described in verses 15, uh, through um, uh, 22 is uh, um, is you have the angels, you have this chariot throne. There's like three levels. You have you have the angelic beings and this and their incredible presence and their incredible movements. That's that's the point I didn't emphasize this morning. They move straight. They don't turn. They don't deviate. One commentator I read said they move they move at, at uh, angles <laughs> to the four corners of, of uh, creation, and uh, they do so with purpose and direction at the bidding of God. So this is the the, the lowest level is the angels. The next level is the chariot throne. Uh, which depicts God's power and might, the stylized wheels. I've seen, I don't know if I want to encourage this or not, but, but there are pictures, artists have gone wild with this imagery. <laughs> sure. um, but I actually think one of the best pictures of this is a chariot with wheels that go in two different directions. A wheel within a wheel, one wheel pointing one way and the other wheel pointing the exact opposite direction. What is he looking at? I, I think, in part, he's looking at uh, the spiritual reality that the temple and its components uh, represent. For example, the Ark of the Covenant. If you ever, if we know the description of the Ark of the Covenant. It's a it's a box about uh, about the size of the the rectangular size of this table. Uh, 
has, has contents in it that uh, differed over the period of the life of Israel, but again, it represented God's presence. But what's on the top of that box? Two of these uh, cherubim. Two of these angelic figures. And you've seen, if you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, you saw the depiction. The angels stretched over with their wingtips touching. Again, the description here. A stylized picture of a spiritual reality. God's allowance in the Old Testament to see a picture of that. If you've been to Israel or the Middle East, you know that one of the common, always struck, it struck me as strange. You go, to, I think it was Capernaum, Capernaum, and there's a famous picture of the Ark of the Covenant, and it had wheels on it. And I thought, that's strange. And I thought, well, is that a picture of the judgment of, of Israel when they put the Ark on an ox cart? And uh, later on, I read, no, that is a stylized picture of the ark as, as Ezekiel describes it. A, a moving representation of the power of God. So it was a common picture drawn from these pages of scripture that the uh, artist, the Jewish artist, tried to replicate. So what, what, what does it mean uh, to us. It means that God has come near to his people. Uh, this, we know about transcendence. Transcendence is that aspect, those aspects of God that we, we scarcely comprehend. They, they are his, his uh, ubiquitous nature. He, God is everywhere. That's a concept that's hard for us mentally to absorb. His, his omniscience, as I mentioned this morning, depicted by the eyes in the chariot. He knows everything. The, the, this is God describing to us uh, the presence of God with his people. Um, and, and so we often speak of the immortal, the invisible, the all, only wise, the all-wise God. Those are those are huge concepts about God. His being all-powerful, his being almighty. Um, that is so difficult to, for us that God also gives us pictures of his eminence. Not only is he transcendent, he's eminent. Not only is he so utterly beyond us, he comes near to us. We used to have church down there, and I always thought about that. We're, we're imminent. We're going to come closer. <laughs> we'll be more uh, accessible. That's who Jesus is. The, the, the eternal God of the universe laid aside his transcendent majesty and became and took the form of a human. And we see that even here. Notice. The angelic beings are at the lowest level. The next, the next level uh, is what we're talking about tonight. We're, we're looking at the expanse of heaven over the creatures, verse 22, over the heads of the living creatures, there was a likeness of an expanse shining like an awe-inspiring crystal spread out over their heads. And under the expanse of their wings were stretched out straight one toward another, like on the ark, 
Each creature had two wings covering its body. And then the sound of like many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of a tumult, like the sound of an army. And when I stood still, they let down their wings. When God speaks, the angelic beings listen. When God speaks, his prophet listens. When God speaks, his people should listen. The voice of God in his creation, the voice of God in his uh, inscripturated word speaking through this vision that Isaiah is moved by the Holy Spirit right down, writes down the purpose of these majestic pictures is for us to give reverent attention to his word and to know that it is God who sits on the throne and his appearance is like a human appearance. It's important for us to recognize, I believe, um, a theophany, an appearance of God, an appearance of the second person of the triune Godhead, who later we will know is the Lord Jesus Christ here. And, and periodically, he does this throughout the Old Testament, right? Periodically. Uh, there's, uh, there's this... Uh, wrestling with an angelic being of, uh, of, um, of Jacob, wrestling with an angel. There's uh, the appearance in Daniel with, um, um, uh, with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in the fiery furnace, one like a son of man. We, 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 we see this uh, throughout the scriptures, and we see it here. This is a, this is a picture of the pre-incarnate Son of God, I'm convinced, who takes a human form. Even if we take this figure, uh, one who has an appearance of a human form, as, as the entire Godhead, it still makes total sense because what are humans? Humans are those who are made in the image of God. So it shouldn't surprise us that Ezekiel sees this vision of God uh, sitting above the heavens, uh, reigning and controlling all the providential things in the world. The one who sits in heaven and directs everything that, that uh, happens, that exists, all the created things of the universe to his own glory. What is described in these verses is no less than the holiness and the perfection and the power of God. It's his attributes. 
we, we speak of two kinds of attributes. We, we, you can talk, think about them in terms of transcendence and, um, and eminence. You can think about it that way. Or, you can, or some theologians prefer to use the terms his incommunicable attributes and his communicable attributes. His incommunicable attributes are those things that we can't even begin to understand. Like his omniscience, how can, how can God know everything all at once? Or his omniscience, how can God be everywhere all at once? How, how can it be, uh, like the scripture says, that it is in him we live and move and have our being? Um, but this is, this is what is being uh, described. There's the expanse of the greatness. It talks about the, the, the expanse of heaven, how great it is. It's like a, an awe-inspiring crystal that is, uh, which is so vast that it cannot be comprehended. And then there's the throne over heaven described in verse 26 and 27. And above the expanse over their head was the likeness of a throne in appearance like a sapphire seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what I had the appearance of his waist, I saw his were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire and there was brightness around him. If you turn to the last book in the Bible, to the first chapter of the book of Revelation, chapter 1, you see this, don't you? In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And I saw him. I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last. Which is precisely John, John, the apostle who writes Revelation, has precisely the reaction that Ezekiel the prophet has in verse 28. The language is so very similar. He is no doubt describing the pre-incarnate Christ, whereas in the book of Revelation, John is describing the resurrected, ascended, glorified Christ who we worship. It, we, it's wonderful that we, we emphasize
emphasize the, the, the suffering of Jesus, the death of Jesus. But we must never neglect his resurrection, his ascension, and his enthronement. Because the one who descended now occupies the same place he did that Ezekiel saw him occupy here. When we begin to comprehend that it is in Christ seated on the throne who is reigning, who's active in his reign, who's the scripture tells us over and over again, he's in the process of trampling all his enemies under his feet. It should transform our confidence. I find myself uh, so often fearful and cringing um, before a world that is increasingly hostile. I'm, I'm learning gradually in my life uh, to smile and to be grateful. Because it's in these times that God reveals himself. If you, if you study not only ancient history and the history of Israel, but, but the history of the church, you know it's in the darkest of times that all of a sudden God begins a work. We have, we have a thousand, we had this glorious expansion of the church in the first four centuries, and then all of a sudden the church got tied to the Roman state and became an institution of, of government, and the, the spiritual life declined up until the time of the reformers. And all of a sudden, uh, men who were cloistered up studying the Bible discovered the incredible truth of the gospel, that justification was not by works and not by religious activity, but was by grace through faith alone in Christ. And this incredible thing called the Reformation began that uh, spread the gospel uh, not only throughout Europe, but around the world, brought it to these shores at the, at the end of that time. Um, resulting in the, the marvelous legacy that we have and our founding principles, which, which by the way, I hope you all have a wonderful celebration of the 4th of July and remember what you're celebrating. Uh, the, the legacy that we have uh, left from that time. Um, but even, even at that time, the, the spiritual life in Europe had declined. The morals had declined to a point where it was just despicable. If you read English literature from the time of uh, uh, right before the um, 17th and the 18th century, you know that the spiritual life in, in England and Europe was abysmal. It was vile. And then along comes the, these uh, Anglican ministers uh, named uh, John and Charles Wesley and a guy named George Whitfield and they started their little holy club at Oxford and, and all of a sudden this great revival exploded and the Christian faith ran throughout uh, England and, and uh, all the way across the ocean again at the founding of this nation transformative I think the uh, missions team is reading a biography of William Carey, right? 
I mean, he, I haven't read, I confess, I haven't read the book yet, but he did he go to China? Yeah, India. India, India first, and he wanted to go to China, he went to India, right? Something like that, I get that wrong. Who went to China? Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor, that's what I'm thinking of. I mean, he went there and labored for years, very few. That we sent missionary after missionary to China for years, and they all got kicked out at, at, at the, um, um, in the in the revolution, the Mayo's revolution. The ones who didn't get kicked out went to concentration camps, and they thought they thought you would stamp Christianity out in China. And what has God done? There's probably more confessing uh, believers in China than there are in the United States right now. Probably we're close. God is not, um, his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom and his spiritual kingdom has more power. And that's the point of these passages is to point out the power of his spiritual kingdom and the power of Jesus reign. And to fill us with confidence. It doesn't show him in a chariot, but it shows him on a white horse. And I, I believe uh, that the rider on the white horse in Revelation 19 is the pre-incarnate Christ. He said he saw, because it says he is, 1911, I saw heaven open again. Heaven is open. John sees a whole white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself, and his clothed, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. That's Jesus. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe, on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is the message that Ezekiel is commissioned to preach as well. And note what the pre-incarnate Christ is clothed in in verse 28. The appearance of a bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Here's the covenant of Noah, the gracious covenant of Noah. And that word bow, which is a battle bow, hung in the heavens, pointed in the colors of the rainbow, God's battle boy, his arrows of wrath pointed away from the earth. No longer, meaning that no longer will God judge the physical earth with water and rain. It is this incredible um, physical 
Some, some of you engineers and scientists can explain the physics of the rainbow. My wife, an artist, explains to me that the colors it, all mixed together are bright white, and when you separate them, they're the colors of the rainbow. A sign of God's covenant, his gracious covenant of turning his wrath away. He clothes himself in heaven with this sign. It's just amazing to me. This beautiful sign of the turning away of God's wrath has been so vilely uh, corrupted and taken. They, they can't just leave. They, they 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 can't just leave it alone either. But it's amusing to me. Have you noticed the the, the so-called uh, pride flag lately? They keep adding colors to it, which kind of makes me smile. They can't just leave it at God's colors. They have to add brown and black and all kinds of colors that aren't in that array. Again, there was never a more apt symbol than that vulgarized uh, description than, than pride, to represent pride, and the destruction that follows pride. Uh, let's, let us not fear such things. Let us cling carefully and closely to the word of God. That, that's the right response to the glory of God. Well, we know how glorious God is in his omniscient power, his omnipotent uh, being, that he controls everything, that, that not one tiny bird falls to the ground, not one random hair from anyone's head falls to the ground without his attention without his direction even. When we understand how powerful God is in what seems to be overwhelming circumstances and, and the conspiracies of man to try to usurp and overthrow the throne of God, we can be as calm and forthright as Daniel and his companions before a wicked ruler. We can be as steady as Isaiah in, in, in the face of a, a vacillating king who, who refuses to listen to reason. We can be as forthright, dare I say it, bold as Ezekiel. This begins with the glory of God. Ezekiel's going to say some hard things. I'll be honest, I've been reading this book back and forth the last few weeks and I'm thinking, how am I gonna preach that? How many of you gonna read that from the pulpit? I'm not sure I am. <laughs> but it's the word of God. It is, these are hard things that we need to hear. Because we, 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 are, we are being, we're having them shoved in our face by a world that hates God. 
And our answer is that we are not confident in ourselves. We're confident in the power of God. We're confident not in our ability to understand and reason and argue. We're confident in God's power to change the world through what Jesus has done. Why do these things happen? Why do bad things happen? Why, why are people going through horrible trials and disease? And why are, why, why are children uh, deserting the gospel and going their own way? Who, who did this? Are we responsible? Is it our fault? Parents asked that of Jesus in John 9. Who, who, who sinned? People asked about the, the man who was blind from birth. Who sinned? Who caused this wickedness, this terrible trial, John 9? Neither. But this happened in order to reveal the power of God. These circumstances we find ourselves in that seem so difficult and overwhelming, they happen to reveal the power of God, either in judgment, or in his great grace and mercy. If you are a child of God, it's for your good they've happened. It's, it's to bring you to faith and trust in him and to show you his sovereign love that he has set upon you from all eternity. Yes, bad things happen. They've happened to everyone. What do we do with those things? If we understand God's glory, we lay them at his feet. We submit them to him. And we plead with him for mercy and grace. And he abundantly, graciously pours it out upon us. Father, thank you for this incredible passage of Scripture that we barely scratched the surface of this morning and evening, but it does show your glory and majesty and that you are over everything. You rule over everything um, and uh, direct all the affairs of mankind for your honor and glory. Fill us with a deep sense of who you are. May it fill us with joy and holy boldness. Father, as we go into this weekend, we'll be interacting with many neighbors and friends and loved ones. Um, may, may we um, be filled with confidence uh, in our conversations, in our dealings, uh, to show others how, how marvelous you are and how great is your grace and forgiveness. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.